0: This is Guidepost, the podcast series on CRISPR and genome editing from the publishers of The CRISPR Journal. Hello and welcome back to Guidepost. I'm Kevin Davis, your host and the executive editor of The CRISPR Journal. We are delighted to be back after a short hiatus when I was perhaps preoccupied with other things, uh, such as finishing a new book. In this episode of Guidepost, a very special conversation with Dame Kay Davis. No relation. This episode is sponsored by Pegasus Books, publisher of Editing Humanity, The CRISPR Revolution and the New Era of Genome Editing, authored by Kevin Davis, and published October, 2020. Available in hardcover, ebook and audiobook. Walter Isaacson says, with great reporting and deep knowledge, the science journalist Kevin Davis takes us to all the front lines of CRISPR research. Editing humanity, out now. This is a special interview for me. For the better part of four decades, Dame K. Davis has been at the forefront of the human genetics revolution, spearheading research on the genetics and diagnostics of Duchenne muscular dystrophy and other muscular dystrophies. Since the discovery of the dystrophin gene in the late 1980s, you say dystrophin, I say dystrophin, Davis, who is the Dr. Lee's Professor of Genetics at the University of Oxford, has pursued multiple therapeutic strategies for DMD, and other disorders. Kay and I go back quite a long way. In 1983, I joined her group at St Mary's Hospital Medical School in London as a new graduate student. Sadly, a rather short-lived stint as she moved to Oxford a few months later. In April, 1992, we found ourselves competing in a way, launching new journals, in my case, Nature Genetics, while Kay launched the journal Human Molecular Genetics and she remains a co-editor of the journal. She served as a governor and deputy chairman of the Wellcome Trust and in 2008 received a Damehood. Last year, Kay was invited by the Royal Society to chair an important commission on germline editing in humans, along with Rockefeller University President Rick Lifton. After more than a year of research and meetings and deliberations, that report, Heritable Human Genome Editing, HHGE, was published in September 2020. It charts a small, narrow translational pathway for the potential implementation of HHGE. For this episode of Guidepost, which was our first conducted over Zoom for obvious reasons, I asked Kay about the genesis of the HHGE report, her experience working with the Commission, and most importantly, discuss the report's chief recommendations and next steps. So Kay Davis, all the way from Oxford uh, via Zoom, Great to see you. How are you?
1: I'm very well, thank you. Good to see you too.
0: Good, good. Not every day one gets to interview a dame, I must say, <laughs> for our non-British listeners. Uh, how, w- what's that all about?
1: It's, well, it's an acknowledgement of contrib- contributions to science, and it's not just the science in the lab. It's scientific policy and actually the sort of things I've just done with the
0: Commission. Right. Fantastic, well, well, we'll turn to the, the, the main reason to have you on the program, which of course is the fact that you've just finished your uh, a year or more's worth of intense work on the Heritable Human Genome Editing, or HHGE report. We'll be talking a lot about that in the next few minutes. But your main focus, indeed, I think your research focus for, gosh, pretty much on four decades now has been muscular dystrophy and Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Um, what, what what drew you to that field and, and why, have, why is it still such a burning, driving passion for you?
1: Well, it, it started actually in London when you were doing your graduate studies, um, when Bob Williamson decided that he wanted to look at the possibility of using RFLPs to map cystic fibrosis gene. Yeah. I joined his lab at the time because I... I'd just read the Botstein paper and the Solomon and Bodman paper about RFLPs and the more general application after YW Kahn's paper on sickle cell DNA diagnosis. And Bob and I sat down uh, and, and collect, decided to collect all of the blood samples from CF patients in the UK. And when we got all those together, we realized what an enormous task it was because it was fishing in all of those autosomes for a locus we had nothing, we knew nothing about. So we decided that DMD was the model for cystic fibrosis. And actually the CF Trust funded me to do that work. And then I met the patients and, you know, the rest is history because they got me hooked on finding both a diagnosis and then potentially a therapy for the disease. One
0: of the therapies I know you've been pursuing, but I'm a little rusty, I don't know where things currently stand, is this idea of upregulating a substitute gene, uh, like eutrophin, for example. Is that still um, a promising approach? And it sort of leads me to uh, the companion question, which is, how do you think genome editing as a discipline is potentially going to impact patients with DMD uh, and other, other muscle dystrophies?
1: Get the answer to the first question, we're still working on eutrophin as a comp- up regulation as a compensation for dystrophin and recent gene therapy work shows that actually utrophin works well in the dog model of the disease so uh, that's a large animal validation that utrophin can help a lot. Um, we, have, we did one clinical trial which failed, we now know why that failed and we know what the mechanism of action of the drug was that we used that now has given us a family of new drugs which we're testing through. So we're still hopeful that we'll get that into the clinic. Uh, Much more uh, promising for the moment, but not necessarily in the long term, because it's not available to every patient, is gene therapy and you know, Sarepta and other Pfizer, solid biosciences, et cetera, have got programs in this. And the initial data in patients are spectacular. They replacing dystrophin at those levels, which are high, And high titus of virus look extremely promising as a therapy. So, then to go to your second question, which is CRISPR, um, yes, you could do CRISPR and you could do multi exon skipping in DD for CRISPR, but you've still got all the challenges. You've got to deliver CRISPR and uh, you've got to do the whole machinery, and it's still AAV. So, you're still limited by that delivery system.
0: Right, well we will, we will watch that space with interest. So let's turn to the um, HG, HHGE Commission report. How did the invitation come about and did you have any uh, deliberations about whether to accept the assignment?
1: I certainly did. Well, yes, I was reproached by the Royal Society by John Scale and asked if I would do this job. And of course I always say it doesn't gonna cost much time. <laughs> But it is going to cost a lot of effort, on the other hand, you know I was intrigued because uh, first of all it's a resp- it was clearly a hot field. It was clear that I would learn something from it because we 'd have an opportunity to interact with colleagues and they 'd chosen Rick Lifton as my uh, co chair uh, and he 's an eminent human geneticist, so I thought that it was worth uh, giving this one a go, and i 've always been interested in the ethical uh, implications I know this isn't wasn't an ethic, a report on ethics but nevertheless you know I've done the genetic testing I've been on lots of committees so I thought my experience with the skills are appropriate to, to try and tackle this one.
0: And how long was the process just briefly what was sort of the, the mechanics of, of pulling this report together?
1: Well we had uh, we we started over a year ago thinking that it would last six months uh, but of course it didn't. And it's not just COVID. It's the the ability to reach consensus on some of the complex issues. Uh, So we had three meetings. Uh, I think you may have been the first one. We had open public forum where we consulted. And of course, we asked for people to send things into the Royal Society and the National Academy. And then we had follow on meetings of the commissioners, the 18 commissioners um, in London and in Washington Um, in fact, Washington, London, and then Washington again, Uh, and the last meeting was in January, um, which was going to be the last meeting. And actually going on Zoom meant that we could then follow on much more frequently, and I think in many ways has helped us a lot, ironically, uh, because we could just have another meeting every week if we wanted to, and in the end, that's exactly what we did.
0: Yeah. The report's correct me if I'm wrong, was uh, convened under the auspices of the National Academies of Sciences and Medicine and the British Royal Society. Um, No sort of governing role for the the Chinese equivalent, the Chinese Academy of Sciences, I would presume. Um, Should we read anything into that? Or did you feel that you were able to still get a very global perspective?
1: I think the point here was that they consulted, that's the National Academy and the Royal Society, consulted uh, t- up to 26 academies, I don't remember the exact number, around the world about the way this should go forward. So it's just an administrative uh, tool, if you like, that it ended up with the National Academy and the Royal Society, because they provided the infrastructure and some of the funding, of course, to putting this report together. So it was with the backing of the Chinese uh, Academy, for example. So there wasn't any friction. And indeed, we have two Chinese nominees uh, on the commission. And that was it. The they went round and asked uh, academies around the world to nominate individuals who might be able to represent their countries wherever we could.
0: Whenever a new book or report comes out, the fun thing to do is immediately flip to the index and see see if you've been cited. And by you or we, I mean the CRISPR journal. And you cited the journal twice. The first paper was a really interesting paper we published, I think it was in our second issue, from Carolyn Brakowski, um, a doctoral student at Yale, who had done heroic work in essentially, I think, really reading all 60-plus uh, reports and statements from different societies and medical groups and, and so on. Um, but, so you were building this report on a huge sort of maybe rather shaky, but a a very large foundation of other efforts to try to get their hands around this subject. Did you feel somehow that this report was going to be different uh, because of the timing and and because you're trying to do something? This isn't just another report. This is in some ways an effort is being made to make this a truly definitive statement that's going to set the stage for years, if not decades, to come.
1: Well, uh, as you know all those numerous reports go from a total moratorium to not a mar- moratorium and so uh, what we felt that we needed a meticulous decision tree on how you could reasonably decide whether this was a safe uh, technology and ready to go and so it was a deep dive so it built on the 2017 report as well just to name one uh, again Uh, that came out with some excellent recommendations. We were building on that by going to a deep dive, explaining the genetics, how far that could go and how far the technology itself could go. And just having an initial pathway, and that's an initial pathway because because it is not ready to go. You couldn't come out with an absolute pathway. But to come out with some guidelines that would steer, help steer countries in coming into a decision about whether they should ever allow that
0: uh, to happen. Great. Um, w- pr- before we get into the, into the meat of the report, um, the, the report, as you just said, is, was entitled Heritable Human uh, Genome Editing, um, and often it's sort of, we, we hear the term germline genome editing. Is that a semantic difference, or is, 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 w- w- did you choose your words uh, advisedly?
1: <clears throat> well, I think what we want is more research into this. So that's more research into germline genome editing. Human germline genome editing is when we're using it clinically. So that was the distinction between the two, which is why we have the term HHGE. So there's a distinction between what's in research and what's actually in the clinic.
0: I see, okay. Um, so would you care to just briefly, folks who haven't read it, it's a long report, um, what, what do you see as the main, the main conclusions, the main takeaways and recommendations?
1: Well the first is that uh, no clinical use should be considered because uh, the technology is not yet uh, established so that we can't guarantee a really safe edit and we can't uh, also guarantee any off-target edits and actually the technology doesn't even exist to determine those off-target edits so we need, there are significant gaps in our knowledge uh, in other words um, and we need, we need both national and international mechanisms to oversee this. And some countries have got good regulatory frameworks and others do not. And I think in many ways, these guidelines um, that we come out with should facilitate those countries that don't have that infrastructure. Again, they'll have to make their own independent decisions, but we would hope to help them with that. Um, and we need to proceed cautiously because it's obvious uh, at the moment, that as we say, we only should come out with very, we should only use it, HHG, for those cases where there is no other option for reproduction because you can't do prenatal testing, you can't do pre implantation genetic testing, and these couples have no option but HHGE.
0: Right. While you were pulling this report together, there's another high profile commission under the auspices of the world health organization did you which is looking more at the ethical and societal aspects of of the field and the technology how much um cross fertilization has there been because it's it's sort of uh i think many people would feel it's pretty hard to have to do one without the other
1: it's true and the who report will cover somatic as well as uh, germline genome editing. So, um, but they will, they're going to look at the governance in much more detail than we did. So the ethical and societal, the major one, issues are going to be dealt with by that WHO committee. But to go to your point, they were present at that initial uh, meeting that we had, um, but we obviously didn't consult. We came to our independent conclusions, but we did discuss our conclusions with them before we had the public release, and we are continuing a dialogue with the WHO i don 't know what in yeah. the end the report would say. hopefully it will agree and build on what we 've said, um, and that we'll work, we will be able to work together in the future. Uh,
0: your commission Kay had I think sixteen members, uh, some very big personalities on that group. were you, uh, Did you feel that everybody was really um, reached a, a, a comfortable consensus, or were there areas of, of sharp perhaps disagreement in some, in some aspects that uh, where you had to make some compromise?
1: Yeah, yes. Of course, there were some big voices uh, in the room. And certainly in the first and second meetings, that was true. By the time we got to the end, this was one of, I think one of the great pleasures that I found working with this group is the amount of consensus that we managed to to reach. It was very difficult towards the end to decide on category, that is category A, B, C, D, etc. Um, and... Uh, sure, we had to think about compromise, but we did reach a consensus. So the big boys and girls uh, actually were very cooperative. And in fact, perhaps I could just say everyone had a contribution. And I think everyone felt they had a contribution. Um, And I'm not just saying, I think members of the commission said it was one of the best uh, uh, people bringing together of minds they'd had for a long time. So it was very intellectually very stimulating. And again, because of the Zoom, you could, you could, you know, you, we, sometimes we just had to leave it, and then come back a week later and start the debate again, and go round and round it several times. And just because we could do it virtually as often as we would like to do it, uh, diarist permitting, I think that allowed us a lot of license to just really think deeply and then come back with colleagues and debate again.
0: I mentioned uh, two CRISPR journals quoted, CRISPR journal articles quoted no. in the in the report. The second was a paper we published last year from Manuel Viotti and colleagues at a facility center in Los Angeles, in which they did a very game uh, thing. They tried to estimate the number of cases, to your point, that, um, and you've, it seems that the the report kind of, um, I'm not saying followed our paper, but uh, Sort of, at least on a parallel track, how many individuals or couples could we even begin to estimate might be suitable um, with other conditions met for HHGE, where pre-implantation genetic testing simply isn't a viable option um would you would, could you say a little bit more about who are those couples and and what sort of numbers did you begin to ascribe uh for the cases in your in your first criterion that you felt if hhg is ready to proceed these are the couples who are the most deserving or the most eligible
1: as that paper points out and it's based on a lot of assumptions i mean it's not only yeah. Oh, yeah. frequent uh, are these uh, parents going to want it? But uh, actually, uh, how many populations is this going to affect? Um, and it'll be in those founder populations, sickle cell anemia, uh, homozygotes, for example. The problem is, will they be fertile? Will they live long enough uh, to reproduce? So the number will be small, we recognize that. <clears throat> but that maybe that's telling us something that how much demand will there be from the patient? for HHGE. But it may be, you know, if the technology becomes really safe and it's reasonably priced because, of course, some of these founder mutations are in parts of the world that don't necessarily have a well-funded health service. Nevertheless, it may be a a great opportunity for those families. And I think it's worth considering even on that basis. But you may only be thinking of, uh, you know, a hundred or less uh, people even in those founder populations.
0: So you mentioned um, sickle cell anemia, sickle cell disease, um, cystic fibrosis. Um, what, what other disorders strike you as being in that sort of uh, most, most likely group um, of cases?
1: Well, there's a small number. I mean, it, it's, yep. as we mentioned in the report, those are the two. Thalassemia is another one. Yep. Uh, so it's mainly the blood disorders because of the founder populations, Tay-Sachs, I guess eventually if we can correct triplet repeat disease you might get Huntington's homozygotes, but those are going to be rare but right. they may be very important for those particular families.
0: Yes, as you know, as everyone knows I think listening, um, a few months after the the Her-Jan-Kui affair, um, uh, a Russian geneticist Denis Rebrikov announced his plans uh, or goals to treat couples with hereditary deafness in Russia and recruited a, a small number of couples. Would, uh, would that disorder qualify or meet your criteria?
1: No, it wouldn't at the moment, because it's not what we would consider a severe a genetic disorder.
0: Okay. Okay.
1: And um, actually, he, yeah. hasn't,
0: he hasn't done that HHGE, fortunately. <laughs> right. No, I, 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 I'm sure that, yes, I know that's on, on pause. Um, you also made a distinction between if editing is to proceed, if, ger- if heredi- hereditary uh, human germline ed- uh, genome editing is to proceed, um, that it should be done only by correcting or reverting one allele to a naturally occurring allele. We're not talking about introducing some foreign sequence um, into, the, into the germline. That, that seems like a fairly a bit a, sort of a no-brainer. But do you want to, would you like to comment on that?
1: Well, it's again, it's this uh, premise that you must proceed cautiously and step by step. So the first step is to r- repair something that might be the normal, if I can call it, the normal uh, sequence uh, in the population. Uh, if you do more than that, then you don't know what else you're influencing in the genome. And by that, I mean whether it, uh, you might, you might take, be taking out a control region for the adjacent gene. We don't know enough about the genetics of even polygenetic diseases or even single gene de- defects in there and the, the control of some of these genes to know that if we actually take something out or put something back in, then we're not actually disturbing the structure in that genome uh, so that we change the expression of the gene in ways in which we wouldn't like
0: to. Right. Whilst you were, I imagine, putting the finishing touches on the report, uh, three preprints uh, were posted, I think you cited them all, um, from leading groups looking at the genetics of early human embryos, uh, pointing out um, perhaps surprisingly uh, frequent and uh, uh, significant Uh, Rearrangements and loss of heterozygosity when attempting to do CRISPR editing in in, uh, early stage human embryos Um, So it speaks to the point that um, You're building a translational pathway, but even at that very first step, there's still a long way to go. Is that a fair comment?
1: Yes, and in fact you highlight a very important point there and that is it can be absolutely perfect in a mouse But that does not mean it's going to be perfect in the human embryo. And I think some of those experiments, well, I don't think, those experiments point out to the fact that what happens in a human embryo may be different from what we see in some of the animal models. And therefore, uh, we need, again, to take a cautious approach because you need to start with the data in the human embryo at a small scale because it may be completely different.
0: Two of the main um, recommendations in the second Sort of part of the report were about establishing some sort of international group, um, ISAP was the uh, acronym you gave it. Uh, what is ISAP and what is the role that you envision this group playing?
1: Well the ISAP, the International Scientific Advisory Panel, would be a group of scientists, um, actually we may actually broaden it and have even members of that ISAP from uh, genetics interest groups, disability groups as well, But really it's to look at the pace of the science. This technology is advancing so fast that you need an ISAP to follow uh, the progress of those technological changes as we move, hopefully, to safer and safer gene editing. Um, Because no single country would know enough, uh, would have even the scientific base to say this is safe. So we'd like a scientific oversight committee that would monitor this on a continuous basis. And perhaps that might be linked into some of the significant uh, scientific societies that might have a a joint committee. Uh, We're not quite sure. We didn't define how this might function, but it's led by the science, really, uh, But monitoring that progress all of the time.
0: Are you waiting for someone to put up their hand or do you have thoughts on who would uh, organize and uh, fund this this group?
1: I think the first step is to wait now for the WHO committee to come out because the the second committee that we're recommending is an international oversight uh, committee that would look at uh, some of these issues on an international level. And these committees need to be interlinked, but they also need to cover the whistleblowing aspect. And by that, I mean someone, the rogue scientist who's doing an experiment in the corner in the middle of a country uh, that uh, I won't name any country. Um, and we're never going to get rid of the rogue scientists, but a combination of this ISAP and this international governance uh, should at least minimize the risk of rogue science.
0: That was a lovely segue to my next question. I, I wanted to touch on whistleblowers. It was one of the more remarkable, one of many remarkable, um, side stories in the, in the, 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 the scandal of, of 2018, in that several prominent scientists and physicians were taken into her Jankui's confidence. We don't think we know exactly how many senior figures in, in China, I'm just talking about the US and, and uh, other Western countries, um, and didn't know where to turn. They may have emailed a colleague uh, hoping for advice. What, if there is uh, a, another rogue scenario, um, what, what does your report suggest that people with knowledge do who do they turn to who are they going to call
1: (laughs) uh well you put your finger on we don't actually say who that should be i mean whether you have an interpol for gene editing i don't know but it would need to be something like that it's very challenging to think of a body to set this up because it has to be anonymous and independent Um, but again i think that's something we need to pay pay attention to rather sooner rather than later so that this doesn't happen again People need an anonymous mechanism of being able to put their hand up and say, I think this might be happening. And again, if there was a committee or an international body that could just pick that up to verify it or not, that would be very helpful. And that certainly did not exist, of course, in 2018.
0: Yeah. Well, the dust has only just settled on the publication of this report. It dropped about three weeks ago from the time that we're recording uh, this interview. Um, w- what has been the reaction? Have you heard any um, constructive criticism or uh, um, uh, many, many, much, much praise? I'm sure. I'm just wondering uh, what what has been the reaction in the last few weeks since the, since the report came out.
1: Well, some, of course, have said, and you must have read it in the press. Some say we we were too narrowly focused on that category. Some people say, well, we didn't concentrate enough on the social and ethical things and we should have discussed polygenetic disease, but actually we do. We go into the arguments uh, in in one of those chapters about why we have uh, those different categories and why it is so narrowly focused and where the need is. This has got to be driven by the need of patients and medicine. Um, Eventually, of course, uh, IVF, clinics might pick it up. But you, but you have to remember that IVF clinics already can do a genetic risk score. They don't need gene editing. They could say, okay, you've got four embryos here. This one's more likely to suffer from diabetes than another. So even there, for the polygenetic and enhancement argument, there are some of the tools that are already in the toolbox. You don't need HHGE, you don't need this extra risk
0: Right, I remember two years ago we were both in the room when we heard Stephen Shu, uh, the co-founder of Genomic Prediction uh, yeah. Yeah. Fertility Clinic in New Jersey, talking about that very uh, that very thing. So um, uh, we, of course, have been waiting for the the publication of your your report f- uh, with with bated breath and um, have immediately asked invited. Um, several dozen uh, experts to provide a comment. We're going to assemble all of these comments um, in, uh, in a future article or perspective in the CRISPR journal. So I just wanted I'm to encouraged. throw some of the... Are you... Are you, are you I'll, I'll make sure you're the, you get the first copy. Um, it's been fascinating. Um, we'll see. Here are just a few things that have come up. And I must say, the, the, certainly the, the, the uh, overwhelming... Um, uh, uh, feedback has been uh, that you did a fantastic job. Um, but we really invited these people to kind of poke holes and see where, th- where they might have done things differently. Um, so one, one, uh, one person says, you're building an expensive bridge to remote islands before we know if we're ready to use it.
1: Well, yeah, that, that, well I mean, we did consider that. I mean, cost, uh, you know, uh, particularly in this day and age, um, I think that's true of all genetic therapies. It'll be true of somatic uh, gene editing as well. We have to drive the costs down for these technologies, or it's simply not going to be used in the way that we'd like to see it used. Um, so it's not just germline editing. That's an issue f- for both. And we do mention the, the cost. Um, yes. And, and you're right. But I would anticipate that gene editing you know, in five years' time will come down in cost. Somatic cell editing and, it, and the way we use that and even gene therapy is horrendously expensive at the moment hmm. driven down by more people taking it up and better technologies so the sustainability of health care has to be underpinned by decent drug pricing we're fully aware of that yeah. so i think that's what anybody working in this space has to think about
0: Again, probably beyond the the remit of your commission,
1: but uh, another uh, sort of
0: meme that we've heard a fair bit about is um, the, the question of societal debate and reaching a societal consensus. How are we going to know when we've reached a societal consensus, do you think?
1: I think that needs to be done on a country by country basis. And indeed, we, should, um, we will start in the UK to do that. And I'm sure other countries will follow through too. And again, the Genetic Society, we're doing a, a, another presentation to the American Society of Human Genetics actually this afternoon uh, webinar on this report. And hopefully by promoting more discussions which go out to the genetic counsellors and the doctors, um, that's the way to reach the... who can then go out to the families that will... It's very important to engage the public in this very early on And I think one of the good things about this report is that it is now timely. It's perhaps should have been there before 2018, but nevertheless, I hope it'll be a a marker on which we can, all countries can build the debate on what we think about gene editing and germline editing in particular.
0: How do, uh, you've you've called for the the, the creation of this ISAP uh, body, how will the authority of this group be respected? As you mentioned, the potential um, efforts to still pursue this technology in many different countries that may not think the same way that the Brits do or the Americans do, for example.
1: Well, I think it has to be international and it has to be transparent in its deliberations with as much consultation as possible. Um, and that's not easy to do, but that doesn't mean we can't achieve it. Um, so that's sounds like a simplistic answer, but I think that's what we have to strive for. Okay. If you go again through the eminent societies, uh, whether it's the American society of reproductive or whatever, whatever it is, I think those mechanisms through science, through discussions, uh, with all the groups and families and the public will eventually get there.
0: Do you think the report itself will act as a deterrent to any other rogue operators who might even be considering you know, maybe going offshore and setting up a CRISPR clinic in some medical tourism hotspot? Do you think the fact that really this, the, the international um, community has laid out this pathway, um, no one can pretend anymore that they, they weren't aware of what the, what the, uh, the, the, the community felt?
1: Uh, I, I think it, it does. And it's because we've reached consensus. There, wasn't any, there weren't any abstentions. We didn't obviously include every country in the world, but there were a significant number and we did consult extensively during the process. So I would be reasonably confident that this does reflect a mechanism that can prevent that rogue, can at least reduce substantially the, uh, the possibility of a rogue scientist doing it in a corner somewhere. Mm. And where,
0: given that your report has uh, highlighted and um, concluded that HHGE should be pursued in a very select number of cases, where does that leave um, the question of genetic enhancement? There's been there's a lot of talk, sometimes in more kind of fictional scenarios, but um, you know we're all dealing with a COVID pandemic and hoping that and invest at the moment whether there are some naturally occurring um, Genetic variants that may provide some sense of immunity to this and other viruses um, If in the future these variants were identified and robustly validated um, Do you not think there might down the road be some Potential cause to revisit your conclusions and say, you know, maybe some future society would want to look at uh, some some Uh, other aspects of genome engineering.
1: Yeah, but that's one reason we didn't close the door completely. Having said that, we didn't leave it very open either. And I think you you have to balance that event. What other options would there be for the sort of things that you've just talked about? And that's better understanding, that's vaccines, that's treatments. Let's hope we learn a lot from this pandemic, for example, where we, well, we've learned a lot about how to do vaccines, but we've also learned a lot about how to get fast treatments. Dexamethasone is an example of that. So I think the scientific, it's a balance. It's a bit like, you know, you could say, maybe we should screen out APOE because that increases your, your susceptibility to Alzheimer's. But maybe the better way is to find a way of treating Alzheimer's because that will affect... And then your, your, your value for money for that scientific development will affect more patients than just those rare examples of where you've got APOE for homozygosity.
0: Yeah. Well, Kay, I think we'll, we'll leave it there. Uh, you've done, uh, on behalf of uh, really the, the, the scientific community, thank you for all the work that you've done in, with Rick Lifton and your commission uh, colleagues in putting a tremendously important report together. Uh, it was no easy task and you've, you've pulled it off. And People may disagree with elements of it, but I think you really have provided a very important roadmap for, for the whole genome editing community. So thank you very much.
1: Thank you. Thank you for liking too.
0: <laughs> and thanks for joining us. We finally get that Davis K and Davis K publication. I'm really excited about that. Me too. <laughs> okay. You've been listening to Guidepost brought to you by the CRISPR Journal, one of 90 peer-reviewed journals published by Marianne Liebert, Inc., just outside New York, covering the whole world of CRISPR biology and genome editing. More details at CRISPRjournal.com. Thanks for listening, and stay safe.